Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I'm your host and king of the boneheads, Ryan Howard, and I just want to welcome everyone back, not only to Rollin' Bones, but to Valor Studios, uh, which for anyone who's a first-timer here with us at Valor Studios, we are a tabletop role-playing community, and we love to share our stories with the world. As I said, I'm Ryan Howard, and this is Rollin' Bones, a tabletop talk show where I bring on guests who create content, design games, do all kinds of neat things in the tabletop role-playing world, and we talk about, you know, what energizes them to do all of these crazy things that they do. So if you guys like what you see tonight, please give us a, a subscribe here on Twitch. Uh, that'll help us out immensely. The subscribe button is down here below my face right now. And you can also join us on Discord for any updates and conversations about Valor Studios content. And you can also join us uh, on YouTube if you miss this after the fact and, uh, you know, you, you want to share this with your friends, uh, you want to, you know, watch this thing again and relive all the great moments and memories that we're sure to make for you here tonight. You can do so uh, on our YouTube page, which is Valor Studios. Uh, you'll find a link for that over here in chat. And uh, for those of you joining us on YouTube, thank you for supporting us in that way. And those of you joining us tonight on audio, thank you for sticking with us in uh, the original format that Roland Bro Bones was brought to you in. So uh, that's it for the, uh, the plugs. So let's bring on the uh, first guest I have back from my sabbatical. Uh, this is a, a really interesting individual, perhaps the most interesting man in the tabletop role-playing world. Uh, <laughs> he has informed me that he is the only game designer and private investigator in the country, perhaps in the world. Uh, you know him from Deadlands Noir, Deadlands Lost Colony, and the forthcoming Deadlands Dark Age. Ladies and gentlemen, boneheads alike, let's give it up for John Goff. Hey. <laughs> John, what how are you doing tonight? To live up to. How you doing tonight, John? Sorry. Oh. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We, we talked over each other there for a, a second, so. Sorry. Oh, it's, it's all good. Don't worry about it. So, uh, John, I'm going to bring you on to Rolling Bones the same way everyone gets brought on. I ask everybody these questions, and I've already warned you that one of them's a doozy. Uh, so let's begin at the beginning here. How did you get into role-playing games? Um, I started, good lord, back in, I'm going to say, 
79 or 80 with the red box D&D basic set. Uh, stumbled on it at a... Um, I don't think there are any more of these stores around, but it was called Magic Mart. And they carried D&D for a while, surprisingly, uh, in the little town that I grew up in. And um, I got it because of the uh, the Hobbit cartoon. It got gotcha. me into reading Tolkien, and Tolkien, Hobbit led to Lord of the Rings, and then um, D&D. I had a um, little thing. It wasn't Steve Jackson games, but I think it eventually led into Steve Jackson games called the Lords of Under Earth or something. It was a little chit-based uh, board game that you played where you were dwarves and you had to fight orcs. And it was basically Moria done in a very simple fashion. And uh, that that completely hooked me and got me into the, the game section. So it was a hop, skip, and a jump to D&D from there. And uh, in high school, we had um, a small group of gamers. Um, and we all kept it very, very quiet because this was, you know, 1981, 2, and 3. Mm-hmm. And, but a very diverse group, shall we say. Uh, it was myself, uh, another couple of friends who I'm still friends with now, the class valedictorian, and... Um, head of the track team <laughs> and class president, just like, you know, the dude in school uh, would come over and play and a guy a year before us. And we just never talked about it at school because, you know, my parents were sure I was summoning the devil and everybody else was sure anybody that played it was a total nerd. Absolutely. And uh, we've got a question already uh, this early on from uh, from Peg Inc. here in chat. Uh, what has it got in its pockets is? I would say that properly, but I can't do a Gollum voice to save my life. So what has it got in its pockets is? Uh, right now, nothing. <laughs> because the camera stops like right here. You guys don't even know if I have pockets. So. <laughs> I also have nothing in my pockets because same reason that he said <laughs> I've, I've been doing this show for years. You guys don't even know if I wear pants, so. I don't go that far, but I'll <laughs> leave it to you guys imagination. Mm-hmm. Although anyone can plainly see the chair behind me is some kind of pleather material. So if I'm not wearing pants, I'm an absolute madman. Well, the pl- the plus in pleather stands for pleasure. <laughs> sure <laughs> so in your uh your long career of playing and running rpgs and designing rpgs what would you say your favorite game system is oh gosh that is is really really hard to answer because some of them really do what they do well um, if I had to pick a general one, obviously, if I had to only play one for the rest of my life, it would be Savage Worlds. But sometimes I really like the leveling up mechanic in D&D. That, that big boost that you get at each level. Um, and I just want to play D&D. And Call of Cthulhu, I think, really does that 
you've got no control here and you might very well die at any minute well um but i would say savage rolls at the top then D D, then call of cthulhu gotcha that's a solid top three that is not too dissimilar from my top three, only I've never played Call of Cthulhu, so my my third one to put in there is Dungeon Crawl Classics. Wow, never played Call of Cthulhu. It's, I, the, the gaming circles that I've run in have been very heavily, uh, 5e specifically. I've had to, like, carve out and, and seek out the, the Savage Worlds niche that I've been able to find. And then, uh, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics is just very, very close to my heart, and a lot of the other circles that I run in love that game. Uh, no one has ever offered to run Call of Cthulhu for me. I don't own any of the books, so I can't run it for anyone. Uh, it's just, it's not something that I've ever had the pleasure of, you know, playing in. Yeah, it was... Um... In college, it was the one that kind of broadened my horizons beyond uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I, I met a couple of guys who said, um, oh, you're into role-playing games? Well, we were in a Call of Cthulhu game. Um, so we've got an opening Friday. Why don't you come on over? And I got there, and the guys had dimmed the lights. One of them was <laughs> literally in a Mazes and Monsters cape with the hood pulled over. They oh were my goodness! Ballhouse and other really um, dark songs in the background, and I my first thought was, "Oh my god, what have I gotten myself into?" <laughs> and um, they ran it in a fashion I'd never seen. They they at this time they dual DM'd one player. One guy would basically do the rules, and another guy did all the NPCs. But um, I remember very clearly early on in the adventure, the guy who was with us, one of the players, we were rowing a, a boat across uh, a lock, and he just got shot and died, and that was it. And he was gone <laughs> and out. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't... He's just dead? That was one bullet. And... <laughs> um, and that led to us exploring other things like GURPS and <laughs> so forth. So, um, I don't remember what the question was. Oh, it's just about your favorite systems. <laughs> but no, I, of all the insane and, and hilarious and gruesome ways that you can die in Call of Cthulhu, being shot is like the most anticlimactic, I have to say. Um, Shane found a way, because he actually played a few games with this group, found a way to make it one of my most memorable role-playing stories. Um, these guys at some point just decided they were going to go off script, and they had us transported to this extra-dimensional realm where there were these beings. We never got the whole story, and that... Long story short, they basically told us we were participating in some sort of uh, game show. <laughs> they told us, um, we'll, we'll resurrect you once if you fall, if you die to the, uh, the challenges we've set before you. But 
you only have one ex one free resurrection. And Shane said, so you'll bring us back to life once? And Thing said, once. And he turned and shot John Hoppler's character in the head. <laughs> he just goes, cool! Bam! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that actually stuck with me for... Ugh. Wow, I don't want to think how many years that did, but from from the times that I've interacted with Shane Hensley, that is that that's the most Shane thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it, it really was. Uh, so. So when it comes to, you know, you're running games or playing in games, we, we all tend to do things a little differently, come at things from our own angles as far as styles. What would you say your play style is when you're playing in a game? And then what's your style when you like to run games? Uh, my, you know, I'll be honest, surprising to some people that know me. I'm not particularly a huge role player. I often tend to revert to John Goff wearing whatever skin. Um, <laughs> As such, I play in a very problem-solving um, frame. I, I prefer to problem-solve over anything else in the game. Um, and I just like to, I like to work with what tools I have at hand to use them in a way that gets over whatever obstacle we're confronted with. And as far as how I run... Um, I try to be fair, even-handed game master as opposed to the uh, the persona that I have. Um, generally, if it's an ongoing campaign, I really hate to kill players, but I will. Well, I'm player characters, not players, but <laughs> I do my best to you know keep player character consistency. But there are consequences to actions. You do something stupid, you your character pays the price. <laughs> um, now, if it's a convention game, all bets are off. <laughs> I will kill characters right and left, up and down all day. In fact, at the uh, at a Deadwood twenty fifth anniversary uh, gathering for Deadlands last year, and we set up a night train. Uh, actually built the town, had the train, and what we would do what I did is just gave people characters from in the town as extras. And they could come in and we just went to see how many people we could kill in the course of one day. <laughs> and nice. I think we popped out around twenty-eight. So nice. And then uh, I am Skyline in chat saying, wearing whatever skin, we're, we're just going to let him say that and move on, are we? <laughs> <laughs> don't ask what you don't want to know. <laughs> so you, you mentioned uh, a story that you said was one of your fondest RPG memories. Is that, like, the top one, or are, is there another one that, that you would say is equivalent to to 
Shane uh, blowing the one free death on shooting one of your party <laughs> members. Um, there, there were several while I was running, and I couldn't really pick. We, uh, we, we diverged from that. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu guys didn't play, but we ran a very lengthy GURPS horror campaign on, and I have a lot of memories from that. But as a player, it really probably comes back to that, that same Call of Cthulhu cam game. It wasn't the same campaign. And um, we had, um, Call of Cthulhu had some really wonky rules about automatic fire. And I got my character had gotten his hands on a Tommy gun, mm. and the uh, we were racing some big ritual in Central America, and uh, the cultists had brought up this dark young of uh, uh, who's the black goat in the woods of a thousand young Shubnigaroth had brought up a dark young of Shubnigaroth and. My character had a army gun and a rifle slung over his shoulder, and I the thing's coming at us. And in the game system, it only would take one point of damage from each bullet that hit it. But the way that they did it is you rolled to hit, and if you hit, then you rolled to die closest to the number of rounds that you fired. And I had a 20 round magazine, so I and I'm like, that's conveniently a 20-sided die. So I just burned the whole magazine at it because <laughs> you could do that in a round. And the, uh, the Game Master rolled to see how many... This was the, the, the two Game Master team. And one of them rolled to see how many hit. And he leaned over and hit the other guy and looked. And it was 19. <laughs> it, it's only taking one damage per bullet, but it's taken 19. <laughs> and they're like, uh, it's still moving. What do you do? And I remember just looking at him and said, reload. <laughs> <laughs> and as a player, that's probably my favorite one. <laughs> oh, I'm going to Chicago typewriter. Shabnigger off. <laughs> <laughs> He's Bugs Moran, and I'm a machine gun Jack McGurn or whoever it was that pulled the trigger in in Chicago in 1929. Oh, yeah. They, uh, I, I built the character on the assumption, you know, the the assumption that you're told, or at least we were told back then, is that uh, guns don't work in Call of Cthulhu, and I had built the character with the assumption of, well, let's test that. <laughs> and pretty much dumped everything I could into shooting. Mm-hmm. And I found very few occasions that if you shot things enough, it didn't matter. <laughs> Hundred bullets per Shagoth sounds like a good exchange to me. Exactly. <laughs> Five magazines. A game system designed to work with me here. <laughs> so... Here is the uh, the doozy question that I would not prep you for at all in the beginning. Everyone who has seen the show before knows what's coming. And I'll tell you, the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. So, John, if, if you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? Um, 
You know, I think somebody already did it. Um, because <laughs> I actually, when I look up at my uh, my quick links bar on Chrome, there is a link to the guy's page. He took um, and made a night train T-shirt that um, it, it's like night train tour and on the back he lists off or, or underneath it it lists off the various towns in <laughs> west that the train had stopped at and i've got like four of those t-shirts i'll be absolutely <laughs> honest i stumbled on it and i'm like oh nope gotta own it yep. gotta, own, gotta own it in that style gotta own it like this i, I, I want two more so um that's Honestly, pretty much it. I I not really philosophical about my t-shirts. My wife bought me two for my birthday a couple of years ago that are pretty much as close to uh, anything that I would have put on one anyway. And the first one is, in my defense, I was left unsupervised, and the other one was be hard to kill, <laughs> which is yeah. The only thing I allow her to say to me before I do anything, she can't say be careful because I'm not going to be, and we both know it. Yeah. But be hard to kill is acceptable. Nice. So you mentioned already that, you know, you and Shane were gaming together early on. How did you uh, come to be friends with Shane, and, and how did, uh, you know, you... you get to be involved with kind of those early days of Pinnacle before there was even really a savage worlds. So how much time have we got left? <laughs> okay. Um, I mentioned we played together back in college. I, um, back before the days of the internet, we had, um, you know, you had bullet boards and game stores and so forth where you would tack up, you were looking for players. And I, um, posted a notice there because one of our friends worked there that I was looking for players and Shane and John Hoppler responded. Um, and I tried to be really selective on who I let play, but I honestly, I suck at that. So I just let everybody that responded play. And um, we started, we had a D and D campaign that ran for about two years, but from that also brought in um, Tory, the same some members of the same group. We played GURPS, we played Chill, we played Call of Cthulhu. And one of the big things with us was one-shot horror adventures where um, you get your characters and we would try to make them as clever and twisty as we could, but you also knew you could die at any minute because this wasn't a character that you had built over X period of time. Um, so fast forward to the end of college, uh, I joined the military and did two enlistments there. And when I got out, I came back to Virginia and I started looking up old friends, some I'd kept in touch with, some I'd lost touch with. And uh, Shane and John and that group, I kind of lost touch with. So I looked them up, contacted them, and Shane said, hey, I'm... Uh, I'm glad you got in touch with me. I started a game company, and we just released their game, and I'd like to send you a copy to look at. And he sent me a copy of the soft cover Deadlands, the, the first one. 
I read through it and I was like, this is awesome. Um, especially because Big Jake and um, the John Wayne True Grit, we used to used to have movie nights and we would watch movies. We'd watch bad movies. We'd watch good movies. And the old Western, well, old, not the black and white, but, you know, the, the 70s and 60s Westerns we would watch. And Shane had written in a rule for what I thought was one of the coolest things in True Grit. And it's where John Wayne um, faces off against Robert Duvall and his a gang on one side and Duvall says that's bold talk for a one-eyed fat man <laughs> and um Wayne says you can see him go fill your hands you son of a bitch <laughs> and he pulls a pistol with one hand puts the reins in his teeth and a rifle in the other and as he's shooting he's spinning the rifle to cock it and <laughs> Shane had put in Deadlands um rules for the one-handed rifle spin. That's like, <laughs> just amazing, man. He goes, I thought you'd like that. And at that point, he said, look, I really loved the horror games you ran back in college. And I'd like you to try to write for us. Um, you, you've still got to do the same route everyone else does, but I think, think you can do it based on what I've seen in the past. And he said, you know, the, the first thing is you got to write a web page piece for us, then write us a convention game. Um, and then we'll see going from there. And um, I proved that I could put, you know, words into a coherent sentence a couple of times. And that's when I got the uh, next one. I looked over, I helped review a book and made suggestions. And then he said, uh, we do these things called dying novels and like to offer you a chance to write one. Um, you know, tell me what you what you would write in it. And that's when I pitched Night Train. And he said, uh, I said, you guys don't have vampires in here. And he said, ah, you know, that's not really our thing. Um, we're, we're more visceral. Uh, we bill ourselves as the spaghetti with meat. And this was right when uh, Vampire was rolling really strong. And uh, the Anne Rice version of Vampires was, uh, was pretty much the accepted version. And I said, I got an idea. And um, so I wrote it, sent it to him. And uh, I still remember Shane telling me, Matt Forbeck looking at it and saying, um, He's gonna he's gonna kill entire groups of players. <laughs> <laughs> like forty of these things. And Shane said, I print it, they'll love it. It's our tomb of it'll be our tomb of horrors. And turns out it was. So here we are, you know, twenty-five plus years after I've written it, and probably half the people that recognize my name recognize it because of the first thing I ever wrote which was a pretty simplistic um, adventure where you get to fight a train full of vampires. <laughs> and, you know, from there it went on. I did Hucksters and Hexes. Well, no, um, yeah, I did Hucksters and Hexes. I did um, Iron Brimstone. And then eventually I moved into um, handling the entire Deadlands line for a little while. Um, and then um, 
that point, I, I transitioned to a real-life career for a few years and uh, just wrote a few things here on the side. And then uh, later on, came back to, to writing more and more as we go. I mean, um, look at my Amazon page to see what I've written. I, I, I've stopped keeping track of the list. Now, uh, just going off of a couple of things that you mentioned, one, the uh, the rifle spin, the one handed rifle spin is absolutely an iconic uh, Western thing. It's a cool thing to me as well. And even before uh, John Wayne did it in True Grit or it maybe even just shortly before Chuck Connors did it on the Rifleman. Right. So it's. That that's definitely something. Anyone who has like fantasies about the Wild West wants to be have their character be able to like spin the Winchester. So it would almost be an incomplete game without that. <laughs> and it's much harder than it looks in real life. And let's just leave yeah, it's like fanning a pistol. Hmm. And then uh, we we have some questions in chat here. Uh, what? What branch of the service were you in? And then an ally on top of that, what did you do while you were in? Um, I was in the Army, and I was an interrogator. <laughs> um, job no longer exists because of uh, bad press we got back, I don't know, mm -hmm. in 2004, um, which I will say was not Army interrogators. They were civilian, but um, yeah, I was... Was an interrogator and um, a linguist. To to do our job, you had to speak a language. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I they taught me Czech, and while I was in, the wall came down in Berlin. <laughs> so uh, when I went back for the second one, I um, they taught me Korean. Gotcha. Neither of which I speak now, <laughs> although I can you know phonetically sound out Korean letters for what that's worth. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Now, you you mentioned, uh, you know, starting out in Deadlands. Uh, there's another thing that, that people would know your name from, and that's, of course, Deadlands Noir. Uh, so is, is Noir something that you've always had kind of an affinity for? Or, you know, how, how did you... How did Deadlands Noir come about in your mind? Um... That one's pretty easy. I can't claim creatorship over that. Basically, Shane contacted me. He said, hey, I want to write a Deadlands uh, Noir. <laughs> <laughs> he said, there's only one or two people on the whole planet I would offer this to. And you're number one. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, I, I have always had a thing for Noir detectives in the uh, I think they are the evolution from the western gunslinger the <laughs> uh, you know the the gritty guy that stands on his own against injustice etc tough talking not afraid to rely on his pistol and so forth and um, I uh, really 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 have an affinity with New Orleans so I wanted to set it there and um, that's pretty much it gotcha pick the, pick the, uh, the depression era period because it seemed really appropriate to um, 
reckoners and the, the sort of general downer that they're about, if you will. Um, and it, New Orleans is an interesting setting for a a noir story, and it's one a lot of people think of, you know, like New York, L.A. and Chicago because of, you know, that that's where a lot of the movies are set. Right. But, you know, w when it comes to New Orleans, you have a city that has some very uh, old and deep roots as far as when it was established. You have a strange mix of cultures in uh you know the the french the spanish and the native american all kind of you know mixing together in that area right. and uh obviously with you know this being a deadlands property you have the uh the voodoo and and the traditions of uh that particular religion so all of that you know mixing together with you know this idea that you know new orleans is a major city it's a major port uh it, it creates some kind of interesting things to play around with as far as an urban fantasy type adventure oh exactly um new orleans just every kind every city in the u.s i think you new orleans is the most unique for all the reasons you you've said and anyone who's visited it realizes it immediately that this is just to to quote uh david s pumpkins it's its own thing um and it just it just radiates a sense of mystery and um even to a degree the occult so um yeah it, it, it to me it yeah, Chicago and New York are the the archetypal in L.A., but um, I think New Orleans has more of a Deadlands feel to it than any of those. And um, in the Companion, we did go on and we did um, we did L.A., we did um, Chicago. Interestingly, uh, Ken Height was over, was actually staying with me at that time. Uh, that noir was rolling and we were looking for you know people to write um he'd come over for a convention and he stayed at my house and then we drove over to the convention and back um so we had a lot of time to talk and ken's a huge huge chicago fan huge huge chicago fan and uh yeah <laughs> Um, but I wanted to do something a little different, mm -hmm. and New Orleans seemed to have all of that. Plus, it's the headquarters for, or was the headquarters for Bayou Vermilion, which was hands down my favorite rail baron in uh, the Weird West. So, gotcha. And we have a, an interesting question from our friend Todd Moonbounce here. Uh, and, and this might be more of a, a Shane question, but I'll ask you anyway. Uh, why take the Deadlands setting into noir rather than making a kind of separate noir game uh, that's not tied into the, the storyline, the meta plot of Deadlands? To a degree, you're, you're probably right. That is more of a Shane question, but I do have some insight um, because, I mean, 
been associated with Deadlands for 25 years, and um, Shane and I are probably the only two guys that have are still around that have been with it from start to finish. And for for a very long time, uh, Shane. Well, I mean, it, it's obvious we we always intended at Weird West continues into Hell on Earth and Hell on Earth into Lost Colony, and there is space in between. And one of the things that Shane had talked about early on was um, he would like to see us develop some of those interim periods, like a 70s period, an 80s period, something like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. various things like that. So it was kind of always there, and by building off of the Weird West, we already have a mythology in place. Uh, we don't have to create an entirely new world or any of that. Um, it just kind of builds off of a foundation that we've already laid. And one thing, one thing that Cheyenne Wright actually mentioned when he was on the show is uh, that's a time period where there are there would still be people around who remembered the old West in the 1930s. Uh, you know, people who were in their prime in, uh, the, the world of the wild West would, you know, still be around and still be able to kind of recall things. So it's, it's distant enough from the wild West to be its own thing, but close enough to have some, uh, deep roots that go back into that particular uh, time period. Absolutely. Um, kind of divergent from that, I, I realized a few years ago, um, I was born late to parents who were born during the Depression. And uh, I realized at some point that my grandfather had been alive during the period that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were active in the West, and that kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, two generations takes takes my family back to the Old West. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, see a question on what's my writing process. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. I generally do have a, an idea for where I'm going with the story. Um, not one of those um, writers who sits down and writes and sees where the story takes them. I do occasionally find that something in the narrative is going a direction I didn't expect, and there's uh, an interesting plot point to work with there. But for the most part, I like to know the end of my journey when I set out. Um, and as far as rituals, um, probably the two I find most helpful are taking a shower. For some reason, uh, my mind wanders onto all kinds of divergent threads while I'm in the shower. And uh, there, there's big psychological study on why that happens because a lot of people apparently do um or i take a hike by myself and i get off in the woods and that kind of frees up my mind to kind of run out these various threads that i've uh, i've come up with 
and I'm writing a uh, a game book, which is what I do most of the time. Mm-hmm. I don't start at the beginning and write straight through to the end. I often will lay out a very rough outline and then fill in the various places as I'm going with whatever has come to me at the time I was you know, running through things like, oh, this goes into the plot point campaign. Oh, this is a character thing. Oh, I want to put this monster in. Uh, this NPC needs to do, needs to have this characteristic, stuff like that. So I, I tend to bounce around as I'm writing a game book because it's, I think that most game books tend to be a lot more detailed in um, setting information than you run into in um, a novel or a work of fiction. I, I, we we look at how thick, um, for instance, the uh, Song of Fire and Ice, Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. Uh, those are stacks of thick books. But if you distill that down into a game book, you're going to have one that's maybe the size of one of those paperbacks, but it's going to be very, very dense information about the setting. Hmm. Hopefully. So Absolutely. Yep, and uh, if you speak of the devil, he uh, shall appear. Cheyenne has actually joined us in chat here. So, Cheyenne, welcome. <laughs> My favorite Cheyenne story was we were at Gen Con. Um, Back in, I want to say 2014, maybe. Um, and we shared a room that year. And the, as we were leaving, we are carting our bags. We get onto the elevator, and the elevator is full. And everybody on it pushes back. So there's a line of people around us, and we're standing in the doorway as it closes behind us. And it's this very uncomfortable silence. And then Cheyenne says, You're probably wondering why I've called you here today. One of us in this elevator is a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody in the elevator was quiet for a second and just <laughs> out laughing. And and with Cheyenne's authoritative and and very dramatic voice, that out of the blue delivery, I can imagine, yeah, would be just amazing. He was in, uh, if I recall, he had uh, black dress pants, a vest, a shirt. He may have had some sort of tie on. He looked very, very important. Mm -hmm. And then you get his booming voice. It was was hilarious. Left quite the impression. And it's funny that that Cheyenne shows up here and comes up in conversation because I just made a batch of Cheyenne's uh, salted caramels, uh, the recipe that he shared with us. That's become my new uh, bribe the neighbors into liking me thing that I make. Awesome. And it is it is 150 percent the recipe that Cheyenne shared with us. Uh, It's not anything that I made up myself, so. I have to always thank Cheyenne when when he's around for uh, for gifting me with that. So, uh, one last noir story before we move on. Um, after you know, Shane said, "Hey, you know, pitch me pitch me a noir game," 
and I, he said, I'm going to put one restriction on it, and it's going to sound really weird. Uh, I don't want any smoking in the game. Um, he's opposed to smoking and doesn't want to promote it in any way, and I, I totally understand it. It's it, it very unhealthy, and all of us, I think, name at least one person we've lost to cancer from smoking or uh, similar products. But jokingly, I said, oh, man, I said, here I was all ready to, to pitch this. Uh, I had an idea for cancer mages and how that, you know, and I went down this, I just talked way too long about it to just beat it, beat the joke into the ground and it get to the end of it. And Shane's like, no, that's actually genius. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we ended up with the hucksters, the, uh, the vice magicians. So, nice. um, That's pretty great. Uh, I, I do actually have one more noir question, and this is not related to Deadlands Noir, but to noir as a whole. Uh, so I, I have to ask, when it comes to the uh, the famous film noir actors, which one is your favorite? And then when it comes to the famous film noir authors, which one would you say is your favorite? Um, for the actors, you got to promise not to hit me. Um, <laughs> I would say my favorite noir actor would be Jeff Bridges in The Big Lebowski. <laughs> Honestly, that is a perfect noir movie. I, no joke. That it, it's a perfect example of the genre. Um, bear with me for a second because my mind is locking up on me. I'm trying to remember. The author, uh, it's he's skipping. Give me just a second. Um, oh, he wrote Ross McDonald is probably my favorite noir author. Um, and second to that would be some of Joe Lansdale's work. Um, if you've not read any Ross McDonald stuff, I highly recommend it if you're into um, into noir. Well, if you're into noir, you've probably read it, but um, he wrote uh, whose character I'm locking up because uh, Paul Newman did a movie where they changed the character's name, but Lou Archer was the name of the detective in the Ross McDonald books. Um, I'd, I'd also give a shout out to Nicholson in uh, Chinatown and um, Nicholas Cage in 8mm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome. So, in the world of Deadlands, uh, now that Savage Worlds Adventurers Edition has come out, there's been lots of changes in the meta narrative. And as Shane told me last time he was on the show, a lot of these changes are going to be playing out in Deadlands Dark Ages, which is uh, 
at this point, you know, coming out and uh, promises to be something kind of big for the world of Deadlands. So tell us a little bit about uh, Deadlands Dark Age and, uh, you know, what the process has been like working on that so far. Dark Ages is probably the project we've worked on, honestly, for the longest period of time. Um, It's something that Fans have been asking for, good lord, almost since Deadlands first released. It's something that's been out there for a very long time. And we finally are at the point where um, we feel like pieces are in place to do it and do it in a fashion that's kind of organic rather than just, we're just going to plug this in and say, here you go. Deadlands alludes to this period and has all the way back to 1997, 96, uh, where it mentions the Reckoners during the Dark Ages and that they were locked away for a period. Um, But now that the Cackler story has, if not resolved, at least played out and um, every, all those pieces are on the table now, um, it was a good time to bring everything together and do Dark Ages. And um, like I said, we've been, we've talked about it for literally decades, and it's been in the works for maybe six years, seven? I don't know. Uh, It's how long I think I've been working on it. So, That answer your question. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) And so when when we're talking about the Dark Ages here, we're we're talking about the period uh, like just after Rome fell. Is that is that correct? Uh, We're talking about the uh, ninth century. Yeah. In Britain, uh, Rome came apart probably, arguably four or five hundred A.D. least in that area, but uh, we're talking about the part where the Saxons have had the Heptarchy for a couple hundred years, probably. The Heptarchy actually being what Martin used a lot for the basis of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. But the um, And now they're seeing the Viking or Dane invasions, and... Um, entire way of life is basically at risk at this point and um it's a period of time that has alfred the great who's the only english ruler to be given the title the great and he's um credited with basically saving saxon britain uh, because his was uh, wessex was the last saxon kingdom to withstand the viking invasions and, um, you know, you, you go another couple hundred years down the road and the Normans take everything and the Normans were basically just French Vikings. So, you know, I don't know what you want to make of that, but mm-hmm. uh, it's a very tumultuous time. And uh, math-wise, it's also a very interesting time because it falls almost exactly a millennium before um, the setting in Weird West. In fact, if you do the math, it 
key points do fall exactly a millennium before major events in the weird west absolutely yeah and that's as far as again as far as fantasy storytelling goes that is a very interesting time to to take a look at because you do have a lot of darkness and a lot of suffering going on at that time with the semi-recent collapse of basically the power that was running the world and now all of these different groups that were previously romans have broken off into their own kind of you know ethnic groups and are now kind of seeking out their own territory and you you know like you mentioned the the danes are invading and the normans are invading and so there's Lots of fertile ground for adventures, both exploring things that have been uh, thought of as lost and dealing with very present uh, problems that, you know, could bring in a, a swift and violent end to any adventurer's life. But the uh, at the time uh, when the the Dane invasions began, a lot of people actually believed it was the apocalypse, um, that the end of the world was at hand um, because these invaders had the, um, they were just savage and brutal and they had the temerity to sack Christian churches. And um, the, by the point that Dark Ages kicks off, like I said, they, control uh, virtually all of the former Saxon kingdoms. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff for a guy with a sword to do at that point. And um, much like with the Weird West, I've tried to make sure that um, there are plenty, plenty of bad guys and that um, the material threat of the Danes is a far second to other things that are taking place. Mm. Well, yeah, and I mean, the the Reckoners are hardly even just like a problem for the Saxons or the Normans. The Danes would have their own interactions with them and their own um, mythology that would kind of inform how they would view the Reckoners. I'm sure they any interaction with them would, you know, probably conjure up images of uh you know Surtur trying to bring about Ragnarok or, or something to that regard. So uh yeah, I that's tried to, I tried so to pull on not just Christian and British, Britain, Saxon mythology, but there are also some creatures from um Viking Norse mythology that make their appearance because the Reckoners feed on fear. And um, at this point, they're only now really latching on to Christianity. Um, and, um, and, you know, it doesn't matter whose fear they feed on, whether it's a Dane's fear of a troll or a Saxon's fear of a Grindelow. <laughs> um and as to faith folk, no, we are not. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's a human. Um, anything supernatural, for the most part, with with very few exceptions, is is ultimately going to be a bad thing. 
And then the other the other major ethnic group that's right there that could also be fun uh, to mess around with is the Celts. Uh, yeah, they're they're seriously on the wane by this point in history. Unfortunately, there are a few holdouts. I mean, you might could argue that Cornwall, Devon, and Wales has a strong enough contingent of Britons, but mm-hmm. um, surprisingly, the the Druids are long gone. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, or at least historically, they're long yeah. gone. Um, you have the Picts up in Pickland who are on the verge of becoming Albion or Scotland. Hmm. Um, you have um, Old Clute and um, some influence from Ireland, but Ireland's got its own problems. Um, but it, it, it's a very interesting time because the Britons hate the Saxons, the Saxons hate the Danes. Um, and the Britons aren't, we're not really at the point where the friend of my, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but you, you've got all kinds of issues there. I mean, Wales didn't get along with anybody ever historically. Um, they didn't get along with themselves. You look at this, this tiny little, (laughs) I say this because my family is Welsh, but there's this tiny section of an island that they fought over for a millennium, basically. And um, it just, a lot of problems. <laughs> just leave it with that. I mean, England, uh, the Isle of Britain is bad enough that the Romans tried to build a wall to keep half of it out. Mm-hmm. Twice. Yep. Absolutely. My my ancestors are the ones they tried to keep on the other side of that wall. So <laughs> You know, I, I, I saw something years ago where I think that large portions of Hadrian's wall were built with a ramp on the Scottish side and just a flat face on the other so that they could let the raiders get in and then trap them as they tried to get <laughs> But they um Mercian king actually built a wall against Wales <laughs> off his dike. He dug this ditch that runs the length of Wales and put a wall up on the other side not long before Dark Ages kicks in. So Britain was big on walls back then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, when uh, when can people expect to enter the, the world of Deadlands Dark Age? What should people be looking out for as far as uh, future announcements uh, for for when that's coming. It is uh, barring unforeseen circumstances this year, and I want to say fall. Uh, I'm not in on those business decisions, yeah. but I know we are rolling ar- along uh, very quickly at this point. Um, I've been talking to uh, folks at Outland. Uh, they're prepping a graphic novel correspond with the release and um they are on they are in fifth gear at this point to get this done um i don't have an exact date but i do think it will be before thanksgiving gotcha think but again i am not a representative of pinnacle (laughs) so (laughs) don't hold them to my forecasts Gotcha. But hopefully, as everyone's going around the uh, the Thanksgiving table 
and it gets to you and you're asked what you're thankful for, you can stab your fork into the table and say, the blood of the Saxons! <laughs> this thing is finally done! <laughs> um, I, you know, having had that much time to work on it, um, I hope what I've turned out is, uh, does justice to the setting. Um, we did noir in less than six months. Um, basically, we started writing it at the same time we started. We were talking about it at the time we launched the Kickstarter. <laughs> and uh, we got that done and out um, within, I believe, around six months. This one has had... Uh, 12 times the amount of effort put into it. I'm not going to say it's 12 times better, but I, I hope that it shows. Um, gotcha. And, you know, if anything goes wrong, I blame the editors and um, everybody else. It wasn't yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, as I've been talking to the guys working on the graphic novel, I'll say, well, this happens. Oh, crap. Let me go make sure it, I didn't cut that out. It's not on the cutting room floor. And so far, everything that I've figured out, everything that I've, I've talked to them about is in the book. So hopefully, they, you know, they won't be, there won't be instances of, uh, hey, what, what is he talking about here? So, this was the most research-heavy thing I've ever worked on, hands down. Um, just, I mean, it's called the Dark Ages for a reason, and that's yeah. there's not a whole lot of actual info from it. And balancing off what one scholar says versus another scholar versus another scholar, somebody's going to come out. I, I, I've no doubt somebody's going to say, oh, no, this isn't right because here it says this. Um, it, it gets to the point where we just had to make a decision and say, historically, we are going to say this is what happened here. Um, but I've learned far more than um, I ever thought I would about you know, Saxon kingdoms in ninth century Britain. Gotcha. Now, as we're wrapping up, I've got one last uh, thing that I, I want to talk about here on the show because anyone who knows me personally knows that one of my favorite authors, period, is Jim Butcher. And you had the pleasure of actually being on a panel with uh, with Jim Butcher. So uh, tell everyone kind of how that came together. And, uh, you know, while you're at it, you can, you can tell everyone your favorite Dresden Files book, too. Um, so another hat that I wear, as you, you alluded to, I am a private investigator. I, I've uh, held licenses in two states. And uh, I currently own my own agency here. But um, I was at a convention years ago, um, and Jim Butcher was the guest of honor, and they were kind of focusing on the Dresden File books. And um, one of the things that they wanted to do was present fic what fictional detectives are like versus real-world detectives. 
and um, it was an obvious choice for a panel on that subject. And they had Jim on there. Um, someone else had written detective fiction, and a, a n another gentleman who had written detective fiction as well. And uh, but he had also done a year as a private investigator to kind of get a feel for it before he wrote his novel. And he was seated right next to me. Jim was one seat over, and obviously, I mean, Jim's the the draw to this panel, and. Throughout it, the, the gentleman next to me, every, I mean, he's speaking from experience, and his experience matches a lot with mine. I'm like, uh, absolutely, absolutely, what Greg's saying. I agree completely with Greg. Let me build on that. The entire time, I was, I was just going on about it. And, and Jim was very upfront. He said, I'm not a detective. I'm a fiction writer. He said, uh, my guy does whatever works best for the story. Um, but uh, we get to the end of it, and my wife says, comes up to me, and she says, um, the guy you were calling Greg the whole time, his name was Peter. <laughs> so I did immediately feel like the world's hugest ass, and uh, I have to find him and apologize. And he says, oh, no, no, it was great. He said, I, did you not notice the whole time I was slowly turning my name tag more and more so you can see it. And um, <laughs> at that point, I'm just like, no, man, I, I, I feel the worst in the world. His name's Peter Wax. He is a, uh, a, a well-published author. I recommend go grab one of his books. The guy's great. He's amazing. He actually ended up writing a book with the pseudonym Greg just as an homage to that entire exchange. But Later on, I uh, I found Jim Butcher, and I said, Jim, man, what the hell? You made me look like an ass. You could have said, that's not his name. And he goes, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. So if you get a chance to go to a convention with Jim Butcher, go. Great guy. Quite mm -hmm. amusing. Very down to earth. Very much a gamer. Mm -hmm. um, for the books... It has been a while, but the one probably, the one that sticks out in my mind is either Grave Peril or Summer Night. Don't ask me to, to tell you the plot of those because what are we on with the Dresden Files books now? Like, Oh, we're into the 20s at this point. Okay, I was going to say 16, 17. There's no way I can pull one of them out, but... Um, now, later on in the convention, they had a uh, panel on conducting urban surveillance, and I was on it with an uh, with another gentleman. And uh, Jim Butcher came in and sat down. My wife was in there, and that was the highlight of the con. For in fact, the highlight of an awful lot of cons since then, that <laughs> Jim Butcher came to a panel. To listen to me. <laughs> so. yeah, Jim, yeah, I'll tell you, detective stories are a lot funnier than gaming stories if we had the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
absolutely. And Jim Butcher is he's on my like top tier wish list for this show. I know uh, pulling him would be very difficult because he has a lot of requests to be interviewed. Uh, but I, I would love nothing more than to bring Jim Butcher on this show. So uh, I've met him a couple times. He's a he's a super nice guy. Uh, I, I And I'm a huge fan of his work. So I'll see what I can do. <laughs> but no unfortunately we are kind of at the uh the end of our time here so uh you know john i'm gonna kind of turn things over to you to promote anything you have to promote i know you're not much of a uh, a user of social media but you know anything that you want to push people towards uh definitely do so it, it's your time to promote anything or anyone that you have to uh to put out there um, well, my next big thing is going to be Dark Ages, without a doubt. Um, I am currently working on um, updating the dime novel fiction with Outland Entertainment to um, bring it up to, um, bring it more in line with post-Morgana effect um, Deadlands. Uh, and and I'll be working with them on the comic for um, Deadlands Dark Ages, and we're we're on that right now. Um, Pinnacle just finished up the Fantasy Companion Kickstarter, and um, that book was informed to a large degree by both Pathfinder and Dark Ages, and Dark Ages was inversely informed a lot by uh, what you see in um, the Fantasy Companion. But uh, other than that, just keep your eyes open for Deadlands Dark Ages. It's probably my biggest project ever, and I hope it's as successful or more so than Dark than Deadlands Noir was. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to come on tonight. Uh, I know that you're a very busy man, and I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation. Uh... <laughs> very busy. And everyone, uh, I, I am so glad to be back uh, doing Roll of Bones. I've missed doing this show. It, it, it takes a lot of work to pull this thing together, but I, I love uh, taking this time to just talk about gaming with everyone. Uh, on Monday night. So I, I'm glad to be back and I'll tell you the hits are going to keep coming because next week here on Rollin' Bones, uh, the co-host of the vintage RPG podcast, John Hambone McGuire is going to be on here to talk about his game three, two, one action, which I've got right here. Uh, he's got a new Kickstarter for a setting called children of Uma. That's going to be compatible with three, two, one action. We're going to have him on to, talk all about that stuff, talk all about Point Nemo, the other setting that he put out for it. And, you know, it's me and it's Hambone. We're both huge wrestling fans. You guys have heard us talk an entire episode about wrestling before, so chances are that's going to come up at some point in the conversation. So uh, if you love Vintage RPG, if you love 321 Action, or if you just love two guys geeking out about RPGs and wrestling, you'll want to tune in next week uh as a reminder you know if you liked what you saw tonight definitely give us a subscribe here on twitch uh share this with your friends it's going to go up on youtube 
Uh, just search for Valor Studios on YouTube, and uh, you'll find us. Uh, episodes go up usually on, on Fridays or Saturdays, and you can also catch this in an audio-only format on whatever podcatcher you enjoy using the most. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. Instagram is my favorite platform, and that's where I post the miniatures that I paint. Uh, so, you know, check that out if you want to see a guy who is decent at painting miniatures. Uh, so until then, everyone, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and with us here at Valor Studios. And I will see you guys next time.